Doctor? Nurse? His beautiful fingers, they're moving. His beautiful eyes, they're opening. His beautiful lips, they're talking. A poem, no doubt. He speaks. I think I've got a bed sore. Such words. How long have I been asleep for? Three weeks. What am I doing here? Well, it's time to record our new episode. Episode? Episode of what? Of our podcast. You say I'm in a podcast? No, our podcast. We've been doing it for ten months. This is our tenth episode. Have you forgotten? Well, how much do we get paid? Nothing. We do it for our own edification. And welcome to our 10th episode bonanza of L.A. Meekly, the I brought, podcast. I brought confetti in a bag. I wasn't done talking. Oh, I brought confetti in a bag for you. <laughs> now I just have a bag full of cold confetti. <laughs> <laughs> Put it in the oven. So this is, once again, the 10th incarnation of Daniel. Greg. One of us is uh, is the, the paddler on the boat that's making all the waves. The other one's just kind of splashing with his <laughs> The hand. other one's Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> so in this episode, we are going to cover the forgotten episodes of Los Angeles history. Things that, you know, you don't remember. Mm-hmm. Like I? my birthday, all of you. <laughs> Thank you. September 20-something. Something, something, something. There's a whole nursery rhyme about it. You should remember September, September. September. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty's about you, and we all know it. Somewhere between Humpty Dumpty and Chicken Little. <laughs> Chicken Dump. <laughs> that was my nickname. Yep. So we're going to talk about things that are not necessarily covered in history books, yeah. usually. Things that most people probably don't know about Yeah. that it, happens in this city. There's no really great movies about them yet, so we're hoping that they get greenlit after they uh, big directors and, yeah. and writers listen to this Consider episode. this our demo reel. <laughs> I know you're listening, Mr. Spielberg. He's always listening. And by the way, give us back that statue of Bullwinkle. I have a spot in my backyard for it. I'm going to bury it like it should have been buried, like moose, mooses get buried. <laughs> like moose and squirrel should be. <laughs> I have three stories. Greg has two. Mm-hmm. And let's get it started. My first one is about the LA Times bombing. I don't know about that. Will you please tell me? Mm. Yeah, okay. Thanks. There was a period of time in the early 20th century that is rarely ever really talked about. Which is weird because there was a period of time where national terrorism was rampant. And in a lot of ways, there was something of a civil war going on. All of this leading up to a giant explosion. We're talking, of course, about Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) The lines around the block. The two warring groups were the unions Mm -hmm. and those who were against the unions. Did you say onions? Oh, it was onions versus tomatoes. (laughs) That's what I was talking about. Age-old fight. So... All across the country, onions were popping up (laughs) and growing (laughs) to try to get workers the rights that they felt they deserved. And this was starting to work in places like New York and San Francisco. Unfortunately, one of the most powerful and influential men in our very own Los Angeles Mm -hmm. seemed to care about nothing other than preventing unions from moving into town. This man was General Harrison Gray Otis. And unlike the other military man we've had on this podcast, Colonel Griffith J. Griffith, (laughs) Otis actually was a general from the Civil War. And in addition to having serious political influence and being ridiculously conservative, 
conservative, he was also the publisher of the LA Times. With his widely read newspaper at his disposal, he regularly published articles and essays strongly opposing unions. He even went so far as to form the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, Mm -hmm. which was a group of local businessmen and bankers who took it upon themselves to intimidate local businesses from hiring union workers. Shame, shame. So they wanted to keep LA an open shop city, which meant that unions uh, were not welcome, pretty much. So Otis, being the very military-minded man that he was, he led his crusade against unions in a very military and relentless way. He was—he would even drive around L.A. in this huge car with a cannon mounted on top of it during his anti-union campaigning. By 1909, there were so many pro-union demonstrations going on in L.A. that Otis, he used his political influence to get the city to pass an anti-picketing ordinance that gave police the right to arrest any demonstrators or anybody speaking in public streets in loud or unusual tones. (laughs) We need that back. (laughs) So hundreds of people were arrested, and I'm sure they were beaten severely. Mm -hmm. And all these efforts led to L.A.'s labor wages. They were 30% lower than the rest of the country. So in the other corner of this fight was the International Association of Bridge and Structural Iron Workers Union. They didn't need a better name, really. I think it's catchy. <laughs> that was a beautiful really, original name. I really like the part about the bridge. This group, it was a militant union that between 1906 to 1910, they bombed between 150 to 200 factories and bridges and railroads all across the country. All of the locations they hit were built by non-union laborers. So they'd build them and then if, like two days later, they would blow them up <laughs> just to show them. So they, they were a peaceful type, they yeah. said. Yeah. I think Gandhi started this group. <laughs> they were called terrorists by like Otis's LA Times, things yeah. like that. And they were proud of wearing that title. Mm-hmm. So the thing was, none of their bombings were ever meant to hurt anybody. There was never any deaths and there were very few injuries until 1910. Oh so after years and years of strife between the industrial freedom people and the workers' rights people, the Iron Workers Union set its sights on the only thing stopping them from moving into L.A., oh boy. which was the L.A. Times. The paper and the, the building. And the railroad that they had exploded. <laughs> <laughs> they literally couldn't get into town. Knowing Otis, that was the man behind all of this, mm-hmm. the union, they were constantly threatening Otis. So what was about to happen was something that everybody feared would someday actually happen. They just hoped it wouldn't, but it did. (laughs) High up in the ranks of the Iron Workers Union was another proud L.A. brother team in the vein of the Menendezes (laughs) and the North Hollywood Shootout Boys. They weren't brothers, but they were boys. Blood blood brothers. Yeah, Their blood was on the pavement (laughs) mingled together, so they're brothers now. Yeah. So these two guys were John and James McNamara. John was the treasurer of the union. He was very handsome. He was very religious, which made him even more handsome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he was was just a generally pleasant kind of guy. James was his twitchy, foul-mouthed crony of a brother. John was the one responsible for planning most of the bombings that the Union did. James was the one that carried them out. I feel like both of us are a little bit James McNamara. We're just a little bit. A little bit. I took a quiz once. <laughs> it told me I was more of a John McNamara. <laughs> so they were doing all this, and they thought now is the, was the time to teach L.A. a lesson. Mm-hmm. So very early in the morning of October 1st, 1910, James made his way to the L.A. Times building, which was on the northeast corner of 1st and Broadway. Right. This was the second location of the L.A. Times. Mm-hmm. It was a really nice building that it opened July 1st, 1887. It was six stories. It cost $25,000 to build, 
which was uh, $5,000 in today's money. <laughs> you it, can buy a bag of chips. You can get a ride on the trolley. You can or get a an soda LA Times pop, building. Or an, yeah. It was the first granite building in LA. And the front counter, they claimed, was partly made out of the wood from Abraham Lincoln's deathbed. Wow. Yeah. That's mean. It is weird. It's kind of weird. That's a kind yeah. of weird thing to pick. He died on this. He's still got some blood streaks and some beard. <laughs> The desk had a beard on it. <laughs> this building was called the Fortress because it looked like a castle. Sort of behind the building was yeah. a place that they called Ink Alley, which was where they stored their alleys. It wasn't an animation department. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, Termite Terrace and Ink Alley were yeah, behind there. They're feuding. They stored it with uh, huge barrels of ink. Right. So this is where James brought what they kept referring to in everything I read as infernal machines which is just a concealed kind of low-grade explosive. This one was in the form of 16 sticks of dynamite attached to a drugstore wind-up alarm clock. Wow, very cartoony. In a briefcase, yeah. yeah. Maybe it was cartoon. Are you sure you didn't just watch a cartoon? I think it really happened. <laughs> yeah, he was a wolf, I think. <laughs> so supposedly the bomb wasn't set to go off till 4 a.m. when nobody was going to be around. But who would have thought that a wind-up alarm clock wouldn't uh, go according to plan? So at around 1 a.m., there were about 115 people in the building that were working late to get the results of the Vanderbilt Cup race that was going on in New York. Who won? I can tell you who didn't. (laughs) (laughs) This was going on, then someone from the lower floors came up and they started saying, it smells like there's a gas leak somewhere. And then at 1.07, the infernal machine ignited. The initial blast blew off the whole first floor wall. People on all six floors of the building and their machinery were thrown up into the air. The blast was heard 15 miles away. And it didn't just affect the Times building. The blast wave hit the entire surrounding area. (laughs) So people that were walking by were thrown into the street. The people that were sitting at the bars across the street were blown off of their stools. They don't like that, people at bars. They don't like that. Especially not at one in the morning. No. That's just where it started. The explosion caused a gas main to burst, and that resulted in a giant fireball sweeping through the building, and then the ink exploded, and then all of the photoprocessing chemicals exploded. Oh, my lord. The entire building was in flames within four minutes. The workers, they were desperately trying to escape the building. They were jumping out of windows. People's skin was melting off of them. There was still paper smoking on the site for 15 days after the explosion. All in all, there were between 20 and 22 people that died. The reason that the figures aren't exact is because only 14 of the bodies could actually be identified. All the bodies were buried in a mass grave in Hollywood forever. After this, the city was in panic of another attack like this happening. And Mm -hmm. later that day... They almost weren't disappointed. (laughs) There was another unexploded infernal machine was found outside the house of General Otis. I read that supposedly a police officer got to it like just before it exploded and threw it away and it like exploded in the air. And that officer, Bruce Wayne. (laughs) Where's Batman? (laughs) I left my cowl at home. (laughs) He just came with bat ears on. Oh no. (laughs) Criminy. Another infernal machine was found outside the house of Otis's anti-union group secretary, Felix J. Zihondalar. Okay, good name. Yeah, beautiful. The Times, they still managed to publish a paper that day by borrowing the machinery at the L.A. Herald's building, and they called this the crime of the century, which they would. Yeah, of course they would. would. Otis immediately blamed the unions, who in turn immediately denied it. And Otis wrote an attack on the bombers, calling them 
You anarchic scum, mm-hmm. you cowardly murderers, you leeches upon honest labor, you midnight assassins, you whose hands are dripping with the innocent blood of your victims. The, that's kind of like totally feeding their ego of like, yeah, we are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, give it to yeah, me. That's all we got. <laughs> so not long after this, on Christmas Day of the same year, the Christmas Ma- Day. <laughs> Yeah, with the explosion as big as you. (laughs) Fetch me that stick of dynamite. (laughs) Christmas Day of the same year, the McNamara's... I don't know how it's it's something. It's a good name. The Irish. <laughs> <laughs> so the the McNam the McNamara is struck again by bombing the Llewellyn Iron Works at Berkeley Square, which was kind of near where USC now is. Mm-hmm. So to catch the culprits, the city paid twenty five thousand dollars, and Otis paid another fifty thousand dollars to hire the private detective named William J. Burns, okay. who was known as America's Sherlock Holmes. Burns took the dynamite from the Z-Handelar bomb that had never exploded and was able to trace it to a company in San Francisco, mm-hmm. who in turn was able to identify the three men who bought it, the, Mac- the, Ma- the, 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 the McNamaras, mm-hmm. the McNamara brothers, and their cohort, Ordie McManigal. Names. There's Names weird. in the first half of the 20th century. Amazing. So much fun. Yeah. They said them just knowing that we would giggle. Mm-hmm. Burns then followed them and made... Quite sure it was them, including going on a hunting trip with James, where he was openly bragging about the bombing. Wow. And eventually he got a confession out of Mac Manigal and arrested all three of them in Indiana, and he extradited them, some say illegally, mm-hmm. back to L.A. on April 23rd, 1911. The public refused to believe that the McNamara's were guilty, and they were wholeheartedly behind them. Samuel Gompers, the union guy, was convinced that they were framed by Otis and his anti-union forces. Unionists and leftists throughout the city, they raised money for their defense. There was even a vaudeville show for the McNamara's put on to raise money for their defense. I want to see it. Just, it was another murderous hero that the city, for some <laughs> reason, latches onto and loves. Eventually, $50,000 was raised, and they were able to hire the famous lawyer, Clarence Darrow to defend them yeah. but despite all the public support Darrow's research into the case quickly showed him that the Mac- the McNamara's I will never get that name it's it's your Achilles McNamara <laughs> <laughs> I just don't like these foreign names <laughs> but Zihandalar that's a good American name that's a name. good American name he played football he'd steak so the Mackie McDonald's whatever they uh, Clara was doing his research on them and he found very quickly that they were very guilty of what they did he visited them in prison and said, my God, you left a trail behind you a mile wide. (laughs) And he got so desperate, he tried to bribe a couple of the jurors to vote not guilty. So now the politics of this all came into it. Darrow didn't want his clients to get the death sentence and the prosecutors didn't want them to be killed to become martyrs for their cause. So on December 1st, 1911, Darrow got the brothers to change their plea from not guilty to guilty and immediately the entire public turned on them. They said that the streets were just littered with like pins and banners saying like free the McNamara's. (laughs) They were just gone. Nobody cared about them. And it's true that they probably didn't intend to kill all the people. But as FDR said about the whole thing, murder is murder. (laughs) And then he uh, went on to murder (laughs) half of Europe. (laughs) James took responsibility for the Times explosion and he got a life sentence. John was charged for the Llewellyn Ironworks bombing and got 15 years. Both of them in San Quentin. Mm -hmm. This was the deadliest crime to ever go on trial in California. 
In the next year, 38 more members of the organization were convicted as well, the union organization. The whole incident was a huge blow to the union movement in the area, and they wouldn't recover from it for decades to come. Any progress that they had made, all the big businesses, they crawled back into their shells and they just banded together to make sure to keep the unions down so nothing like this ever happened again. So now the postscript on where all these people went. Yes. play the theme song of your favorite 80s movie right now (laughs) to hear. I was going to do that Beach Boys song they play at the end of uh, American Graffiti. I'll go. Ready? (gasps) No. After the trial, Clarence Darrow was accused of tampering with the jury Mm -hmm. for the bribing. Some say he was framed by Otis, but probably not. Clarence or Lawrence? What did I say? You said Lawrence earlier. No, I said Clarence earlier. You idiot. God. Oh, he was tried twice, but he was never convicted for this. But his reputation for ruin for many years to come until he defended Leopold, Leopold and Loeb. There we go. And then he really became famous when he was involved with the Scopes monkey trial. I don't know that one. It had to do with mouthwash. So the LA Times building was rebuilt on the same spot. It reopened two years later. This time it was dynamite proof. <laughs> and then JJ came by and he said dynamite and he was promptly arrested. They used this building until 1935 when the current Times building opened up just across the street. Yeah. The cornerstone of the current building, it has inside of it a copper box with the names of those who died in the okay. explosion. And that they have that carved mural on the side of it depicting all these different scenes from LA history, one of them being the explosion. A few months ago, they God, let it go already. A few months ago, they dug up the original foundation of the bombed out building yeah. in the construction they're doing over there to expand Grand Park. The McNamara brothers rotted away in prison, and they mm. died a month apart from each other. Wow. James was forever proud of what he had done. William Burns, the private investigator, went on to become the head of the FBI, and General Otis went on to win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> That's that story. Now forget it all. I'm going to be talking about the Black Plague of 1924 that broke out near downtown LA, not very far from the Alley Times building that must have... It probably blew plague all over the <laughs> That's how it spread. <laughs> I'm getting to it. A giant rat burst out of the flames. <laughs> Milo. Milo. As you know, uh, I'm, I'm par- it t- paralyzed by fear of rats. Mm-hmm. Rats terrify me. There's a giant, to this day. There's a giant gummy rat sitting right next to him right now. Look at this. I'm I think gonna, it just moved. Stop, stop. <laughs> I got to tuck my pants into my socks now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Black Plague broke out in Los Angeles, 1924. Uh, where, where, um, Did you just say werewolf? Yeah, I said werewolf. <laughs> where what wolf. was once known as the Macy Street District, which is now where Twin Towers is. Prison. Yeah, the prison, yeah, right there by it's Chinatown and like, the it. edge of downtown. <laughs> Forget it. It's uh the plague. It happened on uh, Clara Street, which is now Vigna Street. Okay. Okay. If you know that area. No. Okay. Twin Towers. Uh, in 1924, this era was just marinating in squalor. This poorly constructed homes with very close proximity to each other. And similar to the outbreak that almost like wiped out Europe in the 14th century, <laughs> it's a plague that, that attacks like poor people because they just live. So like, one of your favorite things to talk about. Does that, mean poor I'm, people. does that mean I'm a plague since I attack poor people? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're just you dirty. Can, you can just hit so many of them at the same time because they all live close to each other. <laughs> you can't swing your fist in downtown without hitting 40 of them. <laughs> You're the meanest person. It's able to spread because in poor conditions, everyone lives really close and they have, they share a lot of the same stuff because they don't have a lot. So the story goes, it's late September. It's really, really hot. There's a man named Jesus Laqueen and him and some friends are gathering on a porch of a boarding house. This house is 742 Clare Street, which was ground zero for this entire thing. 
it's gone now. I read. I was trying to find out. Like, ah, but I can go there and lick some of that rat dust up. So in attendance on this porch, Jesus the Queen, his daughter Francesca, the Samaranos family who are boarding at the house, and you have the mother Lucina, her husband Guadalupe, and then you have some like Wait, his husband's name was Guadalupe. No, her husband, Lucina's husband's oh. name was Guadalupe. Wait, so a man's name was Guadalupe? Yeah, my grandpa's last name was Guadalupe. Oh, that's not his first name. It is a first name. Guadalupe is a first name. But for a man? Yeah. That's a lady saint. <laughs> you get out. I think it's. I don't. I think it's gender neutral. We should look into it's that not before. Even Guadalupe. <laughs> anyway, Manalupe. We could <laughs> talk about the inconsistencies <laughs> in the Spanish language later. Go on. The Samarano family also had, I believe, like seven children. Some from different marriages, but they had seven kids living in this boarding house. You also had uh, some of their cousins and grandparents and an uncle on this porch. Some friends from around town, Mike and Jose Jimenez, are all on the porch. And Ho- uh, Jesus is telling a story about this smell that he's tracking down. This the smell of really, really awful smell. And he tracked it down to a big, two foot dead rat, oh, just God. dying and decaying. And he's like, "Okay, well, that's got to go." So he picks it up by the tail and throws it out. Now, downtown LA then, as it is very much now, is still plagued by rats. The big rats in the area are uh, the black rats and the Norwegian rats. The and, Norwegian rats? Mm-hmm, the brown rats. They it's, certainly must not get along with the black rats. <laughs> if I know European politics. It all relates, right? <laughs> That's why rats are so vicious, because they relate so easily to human beings. Anyways, so they have two breeds of rats running around. The Norwegian is particularly awful meat-eating monster. And then also ground squirrels. Can get this too. Okay, furry rats. Furry rats with little tails. They're adorable and everyone likes them. <laughs> uh, but they have rabies and the plague. <laughs> I read a book once about rats. The quote, I believe, it was like they've been proven to be able to control their numbers, but they're like impossible to eradicate. Which I think that's the first nice, half is. That's uh, a nice fun, isn't fun it? Pun. I know, <laughs> fun fun. But I think the first half of that statement is completely. I think you cannot control uh, yeah. the numbers. You can't. Are they saying they govern their own numbers, or we can control? Their I numbers? think that that we can control their own numbers. But I think it, that was written a long time ago, <laughs> before uh, the war was decided. <laughs> so they're all on the porch. They're all laughing. And aren't rats gross? But that, by this point, La Queen was either already infected or like on the verge of being infected this plague works in two different ways there's two ways it can get in the body they are transmitted by the fleas that ride on rats so double infestation when you're bitten by a plague flea there's a lymph node that grows nearest to the bite and it tries to fight off uh, the invading disease so there's this monstrous and painful pestule that grows in that spot it grows to the size of like a large egg they said like a goose egg and it's really painful, and it's called a bobo, as in the bobonic plague. A bobo. Bobo, that's so cute. <laughs> now, this bobo leads to a deadly fever, like up, up to like 105 degrees. There's vomiting, there's intense headaches. Then the lift system falls apart, blood begins to congeal around the wound, and then you go limp, and the body part turns black. And that's why they call it the black plague, because there's no blood flowing. So it just goes. This has been LA Medical. <laughs> <laughs> so this is easily treatable, and it's easily contained. It's not contagious by touching blood or tissue that's been infected. So you can control this. But if it left untreated, it can get really, really bad because it can go to a different system of the body. If the bubble is growing and the if the bobo is growing and the body burst, <laughs> you're just gonna laugh at every time I say it. Yeah, I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> Yet another episode where you're just laughing as people die all around you. Hey Greg, my bobo's growing. <laughs> Wasn't Bobo a cat with like a, a like a hat and he like sang to everybody? <laughs> yeah, Bobo the plague bobo. tumor. <laughs> he was every child's favorite character. Mommy, can I have a bobo plate? <laughs> 
You already have Bobo dishes. You want a plate specifically with Bobo on it? You've already got a Bobo goiter. What <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is disgusting. Go if on. the Bobo, if the bubble growing on the body bursts, as it did in this case, it travels to the lungs where it can be uh, transmitted as easily as like touching the sheets that the infected person sweated on, uh, breathing in decaying fumes of a soon-to-be-dead person, this breathing or sneezing and coughing, all that stays in the air for like up to 20 minutes oh my god so you can just be hovering over someone who's sick and then get the black plague it's that easy Ugh. when it when it moves that second stage the lungs of the infected fill with fluid the body can't take in any oxygen the skin darkens and it's just nearly always fatal you can be dead within 24 hours you shouldn't last longer than 96 oh my god as soon as the second it hits that second wave you can die quickly and we'll see <laughs> so back to Queen. he's fallen very ill he has a fever and a giant painful lump on his groin groin that painful little might, bobo growing? might not be a bobo that he's talking about. <laughs> well, that's the funny thing about it. They told him that he had a venereal disease. They didn't know how to... They said he had... Uh, him and... Well, his daughter got it too. She'd fallen ill with the same symptoms. She had a fever. She had breathing problems. So his physician came by the house and diagnosed both of them as double pneumonia, which is, you know, worse than single pneumonia. And uh, they called the lump, the lump in his groin a venereal <laughs> double disease. N- double pneumonia can be the baddest thing since single pneumonia. <laughs> So they called it a venereal disease. He dies, remember, it's late October. He dies on October 1st, and she dies four days later. The ambulance driver who transported them also got sick and became oh, ill God. and died. So did the physician. Soon after, Lucina Samorano, who owned the boarding house where they all sat on that hot September day, she dies. She had treated Francesca, and then she fell ill the same way. Lucina was also six months pregnant. Oh, no. She miscarried, and then she died. Uh, she becomes ill on the 14th, and she dies on the 19th. But she's been ill, but I guess it's been going through. How many through hours that's- is that term? It's been a week. She beat the odds. She beat the odds. <laughs> I think it was her. two weeks. I'm trying to get all the dates right, but it sounds like Francesca dies on the 6th, and then it takes a while to infect Lucina for some reason, but she dies on the 19th, so we're slowly moving through October. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, this whole family is being devastated. Devastated. Really Happy quickly. Halloween. It's a boarding house. Like, how, like, everybody lives in that small quarters. Mm-hmm. I've seen Hey Arnold. Hate you. <laughs> uh, so while these people are dying throughout the weeks, there's funerals, open casket funerals. Oh, no. From what I hear, and people are talking, you were encouraged to kiss the <laughs> kiss the deceased, <laughs> lean in as as close as possible, <laughs> and uh, you know people are just walking up to these decaying corpses and breathing in infected air from the deceased, and then coming home and dying. That guarantees an entire family and loved ones were all getting sick of the same thing. So people were being afflicted with this, this high intense fever, pain in the back and the chest, these raw red spots in the chest, and bloody sputum, which is just like like. Bloody sputum? Sputum, which is just that spit that comes Isn't from that the Isn't that a comedian gut. from the 30s? Remember him? He was so funny. Him, Red funniest. Skeleton, Bloody Sputum, the whole bit. <laughs> Jess Foxworthy? <laughs> Jess Foxworthy. Oh, my God. Oh, boy. <laughs> Got hot mouth today. <laughs> So it's October 28th. This is the official day that the, it sort of just gets out of hand as if it's not out of hand already. It spreads really, really quickly. 15 people were infected and all of them died within three days. Many of them were family members or boarders of the Samaranos. There was a Catholic priest named Father Bruala who had administered the last rites to the victims. He said the Requiem Mass for the Samaranos as well as a dozen other or so. He was just at all these funerals back to forth. Uh, he develops the same respiratory symptom and he dies a couple days later. So within a week, the entire Samarano family of eight had died except for the infant Raul, who was the survivor of uh, the, the only survivor of 742 Clara Street. The that, chosen one. The chosen one. I heard, I read somewhere that when they figured out that it was plague, they didn't figure out it was plague. They kept calling it other things. There's a book out there called Shrouds of Silence, I believe. I'll get the book title and put it on the blog. But um, he's saying that there's a massive cover up just because they, they, well, get to it. Cover up seems, that'll be a key word in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, put on some pants. They said that there's a massive cover up because they kept calling it other things because they didn't want to treat people because they were Mexicans. So they thought that they would just have poor living conditions. 
like, yeah, whatever. This happens to them all the time. This is <laughs> they a have Mexican. churro fever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so anyways, when they find out it's a plague, only two people get the the whatever antidote or whatever. And one of them was Raul. They don't really know. They said the other person who got the antidote was this nurse who looked over Guadalupe Serrano because they were the only people who pretty the basically man. survived. The man, yeah. Guadalupe Serrano. Wait a minute. The Not nurse Serrano. wasn't a man, Samarano. right? A, ma- a nurse can't be a man, right? This is the 20s, right? Shouldn't she be like Why switchboard <laughs> operator? Why couldn't the nurse operate on that boy? Cause... <laughs> then we have to cut to the scene from The Fugitive. <laughs> you know um, the one. On the 29th, there's seven more plague victims that die. And within days, a dozen more deaths occurred in the neighborhoods. And then the, also the uh, Belvedere district, which is on the east side of the river. They're also mm-hmm. getting it. It's starting to spread on that side, too. Then on October 30th, nearly a month after the disease had claimed its first victim, Alley County Hospital pathologist George Manor uh, looked through his microscope and identified the killer bacterium was the plague. Manor, who had never worn gloves during the autopsies. You know, they should have hired William J. Burns. (laughs) He would have got to the bottom of everything. He would have found the rat like, that's it. Case closed. Give me some cocaine. (laughs) He identified it as the plague. He also didn't wear gloves during the autopsies. Guess what happens there? Anyways, (laughs) by Halloween, 1924, after a plague killed Dr. Manor, a white collar white collar uh it was discovered that the plague was it was a plague that was affecting everybody the black death as it's called the black plague the beast the monster the beast the beast leviathan uh, <laughs> although the plague had had an outbreak in san francisco rats on a ship from china unrelated oh okay yeah they say that the rats not, i don't think they traveled i think that we took them in from like san pedro or they were saying that this particular kind of rat that had that put an outbreak out in san francisco in the early part of the century like 1904 they say that the rats slowly move from like Oakland and then through like Central Valley. So they're trying to like, oh yeah, the rats move south. And I think that we took them in because <laughs> I mean that area right by Twin Towers, Chinatown's right there, and they got stuff from San Pedro from the Japanese shippers that we'll be talking about yeah. later. Yeah, that makes sense. No one in LA was suspecting that it was the plague. Doctors suspected meningitis, influenza, pneumonia, typhus. Many newspapers at the time were being really, really blunt about it being from the poor living conditions of Mexicans and Chinese that live in the area, and they blamed their way of living for the disease that was affecting them. <laughs> what did the LA Times have to say about <laughs> this? As they're built, they're just putting bricks. They're <laughs> just the a st- bunch of Mexicans. <laughs> on the still living Mexican people, they're just building stuff on top of them. <laughs> It's the way you live. You need more money. <laughs> no, you can't have a job. Even when the health authorities learned that it was a plague, which was much later, they still called, oh, yeah, plague must be like a Mexican thing. Like, they just kept, like, throwing it in there. Like, it, it was just something they couldn't let go. So this is what they do to get in gear. Strict quarantine of all areas so the plague causes had occurred or might occur. Okay, makes sense. Segregation of the inhabitants of these districts and prevention of other groups of people. They really need to come up with a better word for segregation <laughs> when it's coming to race. Like, separation, maybe. The segregation and race doesn't really go well together. <laughs> a daily house-to-house inspection with a quarantine area. Daily. Daily. Hospitalization of all known contacts of persons with mnemonic plague and hospitalizations of all the ill persons found within the quarantine area. Examination of all the dead bodies by physicians and autopsies by the pathologists at LA General Hospital. He was dead. <laughs> Gloves optional. Gloves optional. Sprayed it all in. <laughs> Establishment of a bac- bacteriological... Sorry. Establishment of a bacteriological... That doesn't sound right. Establishment of a uh, bacteria. What's the word? Bacteria. Bacteriological. Bacteriological. Establishment of a bacteriological laboratory exclusively for examinations of rodent and human plague. Party at my house. <laughs> a special force of men. I have for- a few specimens in my pool. <laughs> Munching on some cheese, maybe. A special force of men for widespread trapping and poisoning of rats and rat proofing of buildings. 
Although I would fund the project, you could find me in a hot air balloon high above the city. <laughs> Disinfection of premises by petroleum spray. I'm on board. Tagging of all rats, mice, and squirrels collected so locations of any infected rodents would be known and progress of infection mapped out. A special tagging from rats from the Harbor District. Again, hot air balloon. I'm going to nowhere near any of this. Proper disposal of garbage and separation of rat from its food supply. The most common rat food supply. Fear. <laughs> Eradication of ground squirrels. I'm very sorry, ground squirrels, but you run with bad company. Under the direction of the county hortological commissioner. These are hard words to say. Yeah, rat. Scream. Fear. <laughs> Death. Mexican. <laughs> Health officials, uh, they reacted really fast. They started placing a really, really strict quarantine on 8-block area around Clara Street, bounded by Alameda Street and the LA River, and Macy Street, which is now Cesar Chavez Avenue, which is right. It runs along um, Alvaro Street. Macy Street Elementary was included, and we're going to hear about Nora Steary, who was a teacher there. Who was really one of like, uh, she, I always relate her to like the early librarians. Like She's one of those ladies. She's just ladies. like, I'm taking this down. <laughs> Until a man comes along. <laughs> <laughs> a six-walk area was also put around Belvedere Gardens, the district, because they, they had to be quarantined too, because they had they attended a lot of the Clutter Street funerals. So the entire quarantine included South Street District, Marengo Street District, Pomeroy Street District, Belvedere Gardens, and all Mexican neighborhoods in the little between. All that little nickname. And the rest. And the rest. Was there any suspicion of Nosferatu in any of this? Not, not one. The, along the river, like along the river, no, no Nosferatu. Rats being summoned all over? Nosferatu. Nosferatu. Not Feratu. You know who would have got to the bottom of the case? <laughs> Burns. <laughs> Put the fact of Burns on the case. <laughs> and his lovely sidekick, Knutson. <laughs> So the city's response was really fierce. Uh, officials quarantined neighborhoods where a total of around like 1,800 to 2,500 people lived. Even when there were no signs of the plague but plenty of signs of ethnicity, streets were blocked. They were just covering all these streets up because like, oh, they're poor. They probably have it too. <laughs> the inhabitants of each house were... It's kind of like an internment camp. Looks Look like my two my stories are pretty similar, huh? <laughs> you know what you were doing. You white caller the inhabitants of each house were forbidden to leave the premises all gatherings of people were prevented that actually kind of makes a little <laughs> sense police and health department guards stood ready on uh, pretty much on call on a military basis inspectors executed stray dogs and cats sad they tore off the sightings of homes the fumigate foundations they buried garbage and burned beddings as dead rats piled up at the city's lab they called it the ratatorium <laughs> more residents kept getting sick the plague was contained in november we're on, we're on a podcast recently called this is rat Right. Yeah, this is rat. Yeah, yeah. Where they talk fun. about rat. Yeah, we went on to talk about finks. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other sorts of rats are there? We talked about the big problem between blacks and browns. Rats. Rats. That is. Yeah, rats. That and is. With the wonderful hosts Kyle Rat and Rat Burnside. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Go listen to it. As dead rats piled up at the city's lab, they called it the ratatorium. Mm-hmm. More residents kept getting sick. The plague was contained by November, but by the year's end, nearly 40 people were dead. 37, I believe the title, the, the count was. Inside the quarantine lines, they had a lot of, like, professionals wearing early uh, era hazmat suits. Did they wear those uh, plague masks? No, I don't noses? think they did. That yeah. would have been pretty gnarly to see come down Sunset Boulevard. Terrifying. 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 We're here to help! No, <laughs> you're not. I could we're tell. on our way to the Troubadour. <laughs> <laughs> we just came from the the LA Times building <laughs> 10 years ago. That's how long it took to walk. <laughs> they, so they started setting up temporary labs. They uh, they gathered a lot of blood samples, which a lot of people were hesitant to do. In early November, the Macy Street School had a, either a principal or a teacher. Her name was Nora Steary. She tried to enter the area, and when guards stopped her, uh, she appealed to health officials and the mayor, who also refused. So she just made her way in, snuck behind the guards, past the guards. She was so closely linked with the school and the, the area she worked in, so she really cared about everybody in there. So she just forced her way in. She would go around. She was just lifting everyone's spirits. She got the school kitchen 
kitchen open. She started feeding the community that way because the police had given them rations that were really small, so she was making sure everyone was well fed. She organized musicians who lived inside the quarantined area to serenade every night mm. for sure you know like they did when the titanic was sinking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as people were freezing and mothers and children were waiting for that next lifeboat it's coming it's coming mom it's coming, it's coming mom. regenerate she was also a red cross volunteer so she persuaded a lot of people to just give up to blood tests and she understood like this was helping everybody so she was kind of there just raising it's nice for a, a white lady to do that so on november 6th an intensive rat eradication. Ah, eradication. It was a $50,000 program that ran until May of 1925 and involved burning and demolishing many of the downtown's rundown buildings. Of the 106,951 rats that were examined in the labs, somewhere between 160 and 190 rats and five squirrels were found to have be infected with the plague, both in rich and poor areas. They found some in Beverly Hills, some were in the harbor and in downtown. Sorry to say. 3,812 mice were killed and only nine had the plague, which included Mickey, Minnie, Tom and Tom and Jerry, and Mighty the Mouse. Where are they buried? <laughs> Mass grave. <laughs> Some of the plague infected rats were found in Vernon, home to the Farmer John Slaughterhouse. Oh, yeah. They were found on a hog ranch, and now I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> rat proofing swept the city, and although it must have been a glorious time to hang around in an alley, I'm sure rats were just everywhere because they were just getting killed. So they were just like, you open like a drawer, there's like seven rats in there. <laughs> Shut the light. <laughs> they they examined the railroad yards. They examined uh, freight trains coming from Mexico. All the, the trains coming from Mexico got fumigated. Quarantine was lifted on November 13th of that year of 1924, nearly after two weeks since Halloween, when it really spread out of control. It had lasted for 12 days after the onset of the last case of the plague. In the end, like I said, 37 people had died. In 2006, Southern California's rat and squirrel population continue to be a major pool for the plague and the most common source for humans to get it. Fleas can move from rodents to pets and then to people. Earlier this year, Santa Monica killed squirrels in Pacific Palisades to reduce the number of plague-carrying fleas. So there, it's still out there. It's, it's still just out waiting. There. It's just waiting. Go pet that squirrel. Let it have some of your Burger King fries. There's a rat. Oh, he's cute. Let's touch him, mommy. No, kill him. Break his neck and leave him. Suck his brains out just to be sure that you get his power. Because you know where all rats lead? Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Follow great. them. Follow the trail. Follow the trail. You'll find the real problem here. So what's going to happen is the arc storm's going to hit, and then Stop the it. rats will just Stop come it. surfing you right s- into our mouths. Oh. <laughs> I thought about the other day this... The ratatorium. I thought about like opening my trash can and there's been a pile of dead rats. And I since then I haven't been able to sit still. Rats, Daniel. Rats. Not all their names are Milo, but most of them are, right? <laughs> so now I'm gonna bring us into World War II, which is where the rest of our stories take place. As we all know, Nazis were bad. What not everybody Slow knows. Slow down. <laughs> what not everybody knows is how big of a presence the Nazis had in the United States. While Hitler's Nazis were rising through the ranks of Germany, you know, by force, yeah. the U.S. had several Nazi counterparts that were trying to make a name for themselves at the same time. The biggest of them was the German-American Bund, mm. which at its height had about 23,000 members. And as you can imagine, people didn't take kindly to them. Most of all, the Jewish people didn't take kindly well, to them. Certainly not. Good for them. Many of whom, the Jewish people at this time, were uh, what you could call gangsters. Okay. So guys like Bugsy Siegel and Mickey Cohen, they would violently break up any bun meetings that they got word of. We need another Mickey Cohen. That's what this city needs. Another Mickey Cohen. And a Batman. 
What's and, Burns doing? Ah, uh, dead. Long dead. <laughs> but Jewish hate wasn't just confined to Germans. So on January 30th, 1933, the same day that Hitler became Chancellor of Germany, a good Christian boy from North Carolina named William Dudley Pelly, who was a former writer who had won the O. Henry Award for his short stories once, he announced the existence of his group. William Dudley is such a strong Nazi name. It's like a Himmler or a Goebbels. Or Dudley. A, or a Dudley. <laughs> so he announced his group, the Silver Legion of America. Not a good Nazi name. Either. A.K.A. the Silver Shirts. For That's a little th- better. They were called that because they wore silver shirts and they had a big scarlet L on them for the Legion. They said it stood for like love and like understanding and lendship and stuff like that. You know that main designer was uh, Liberace. <laughs> I wish I had wavy hair like him. <laughs> Don't you? Like who? <laughs> These people, they claim they were not Nazis, but let's look at their credo and let that speak for them. Only Christian people were allowed in, which is why they referred to themselves as the Christian militia. Okay. They believed that FDR destroyed the Constitution and that the Jews were leading the country into Sovietism. Okay. The Jews, of course, to them being the predatory people who control the country and are driving it into the ground. They said in 1933, mind you, which was before the camps in, uh, Mm -hmm. in Europe, that Hitler won't be able to finish his work against the Jews and that the finish of it will come right here in America. Oh, so the final solution was here. Yeah. This Do you was have a Dudley's solution. <laughs> I got flyers. If, <laughs> if you wanted to learn more about their beliefs on racial equality, they wanted you to refer to what Henry Ford had published on the topic. You know, his multi-volume book series about how Jews are horrible. Mm-hmm. So at their height... It's not a good read. At the, it's uh, kind of slow. Yeah, the end is... No good. Bunk. I won't spoil it. At their height, the Silver Shirts had about 15,000 members. Once the war actually started, they pretty much disappeared. Mm-hmm. So in 1936, <laughs> Pelly he even ran for president as the representative from the Christian Party, which he founded. Both the Bund and the Silver Shirts held public rallies in L.A. The Silver Shirts had chapters in Inglewood, Huntington Park, Baldwin Park, Long Beach. All strong Christian white areas. Yeah, yeah. Inglewood. <laughs> Baldwin Park. <laughs> Things got so bad that in 1936, out of concern over the rise of fascism in Europe as well as at home, the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League was formed to push back. It was made up entirely of film industry people like Ernst Lubitsch, Eddie Cantor, Dashiell Hammett, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Hammett. Chico Marx. I was going to bring up Dashiell Hammett when you brought up birds. I'm like, nobody's going to know who he is. But Dashiell Hammett was there? Mm-hmm. I like him. He's a tough guy. He's a tough guy. He's a tough Jew lover. <laughs> Ew, maybe I don't want to read his books anymore. <laughs> Go on. Or is it just about bar mitzvahs and all this stuff? <laughs> So the Warner Brothers, they also supported the Anti-Nazi League, which is why they made fun of Hitler so much mm-hmm. in their Looney Tunes. Yes. The other Jewish studio heads, they made movies around this time that were anti-Hitler and anti-racism allegories, which caused backlash against Hollywood for influencing the public with movie propaganda that mm-hmm. would kind of lead the country into war. But all, most of this criticism came from noted racists like Joe Kennedy and Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> By 1938, the Anti-Nazi League had five thousand members so of course they were accused by the house un-american activities community of being communists the uac the huak huak huak, huak. they so, are talked about very heavily in uh james Elroy's big nowhere it's very good very good uh is he a nazi oh, he sort of sounds like one sometimes <laughs> now from here on 
what exactly happened in the Santa Monica Mountains at what was known as Murphy Ranch is a little unclear because once the war was over, people who had sympathized with the Nazis or actually were Nazis rarely liked to talk about it, especially the ones that were living in Hollywood and were trying to keep a low key about it. So in 1933, a Jesse M. Murphy bought a huge plot of land up Rustic Canyon in what is now Will Rogers State Historic Park from none other than Will Rogers. That all makes sense, only Jesse M. Murphy didn't exist outside of this deal. Like, there was no record of really? a Jesse M. Murphy outside of here. I read that it was possible that Jesse Murphy was a thumbtack millionaire that lived in, like, Pasadena or something, <laughs> but I can't find any proof to back that wow. up. Wow. Yeah, and I read that off of uh, Goebbels.com. Goebbels.com? <laughs> 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 the Daily Goebbels. <laughs> the name, it was likely a front. What was true was who ended moving onto that land, Winona and Norman Stevens. Norman was an engineer from the silver mines of Colorado. Mm -hmm. Winona was the daughter of a wealthy industrialist, maybe a thumbtack millionaire heiress. Who knows? She had a very deep belief in the occult and all things mystical. And unfortunately for her, she fell into a crowd where she met a man who we only know by the name of Herr Schmidt. Pretty sure Bugs Bunny got the best of Herr Schmidt, right? Maybe I'm thinking of someone else. I think you're thinking of Hitler. Oh, that's not Herr Schmidt? Who? Herr Schmidt. (laughs) Go ahead. So Herr Schmidt was a prominent member of the Silver Shirts and was supposedly very mystical himself. He even claimed to have supernatural powers and other lies. I could fly, look. (laughs) All right, yeah, you could fly. I did it. You blinked. (laughs) He became something like a Svengali or like a Rasputin to the Stevens. So Herr Schmidt managed to convince the Stevens that war was coming, which he was right about, (laughs) and that Germany would win, which he was wrong about. (laughs) He said that the Nazis would conquer Europe and launch an assault on the U.S., which would cause anarchy to sweep over the nation. So what needed to be done was they had to build a self-sustaining compound where they and a select group of Aryans could wait out the pandemonium until the time was right, either for them to emerge and impose order on the country in the name of the Nazi party, or to wait there until Hitler arrived, in which case he would use Murphy Ranch as his North American headquarters. God, if it's just Aryans at the end of the world, just kill me now. Hey, sometimes I feel like the world's going that way. (laughs) (laughs) Canceled. (laughs) So, in either case, the ranch was intended to become the seat of American fascism. Mm -hmm. So, to do this, the Stevenses spent $4 million to put up a 395,000 gallon water tank, a 20,000 gallon fuel tank, a power station, this elaborately tiered sprinkler system that was all over the hillside to water their fruit and nuts. Yeah, water the nuts, you know what I mean? Right, you rich, gotta keep those mm, rich, crazy water. people. So the land, it's also covered in these huge staircases that they plan to use both for maintenance and patrol of the area. The builders that they hired were confused of what they were making and why they were doing this. They spent so much money on this that it's believed that some of the funding actually came from Germany. So they planned to put up a four-story mansion, five libraries, a swimming pool, and a gym, but they ran out of money. Valsmella. Sorry, just let that one go. Ironically, the grounds, they were partially designed by a black architect, but not just any black architect, Paul Williams, who was the first black member of the American Institute of Architects. He's also the guy who designed the theme building at LAX, which is that alien thing. Yeah, the alien thing. And then the other designer on the grounds was Welton Beckett, who designed the Capitol Records building. Wow. Nazis. Nazis. So it's not exactly sure what went on in the compound, but neighbors saw people patrolling the area in silver shirts uniforms and taking 
taking part in paramilitary drills that were being led by Herr Schmidt. Some of the Jewish neighbors even said that swastikas were painted on their doors in the middle of the night. There were about 40... You damn kids! <laughs> you damn Hitler youth! <laughs> about 40 people probably lived on this compound. Uh, others would like drive up for the weekend, run their paramilitary drills, and then go home. Mm. You know, weekend... Vacations. Uh, weekend SS. <laughs> the place, it was just a magnet for Nazi sympathizers. And then... Pearl Harbor happened, and the next day, federal agents who had been watching the compound <laughs> for a while raided it, and they arrested dozens of people. Schmidt was uh, identified as a Nazi spy, and he had a radio that was capable of sending messages to Germany. So Schmidt was sent to prison, and that's the last that we know of him. The Stevenses, silver shirts though they were, pleaded that Herr Schmidt had manipulated them into building the compound for Germany, so they were let off the hook, and they continued to live on the ranch until 1948, when it was sold to the Huntington Hartford Foundation, and they turned it into an artist's colony where Henry Miller lived for a while. Really? So the ranch, it now belongs to the city. They wanted to give it to Topanga State Park but they won't accept it until all the structures are demolished. <laughs> but it's so expensive that the city's just forget it. And it's right. just like a no man's land now. Lots of neo-Nazis visit it nowadays, as well as humans. <laughs> <laughs> you can look up online how to hike there. The stuff they built, it's still there. It's, it got kind of trashed over the years. And of course, it was damaged by some wildfires. But it seems kind of interesting. Meanwhile, Nazism is still alive and well in L.A. The mm -hmm. National Alliance is the biggest neo-Nazi group in America. They're well represented in L.A. The National Socialist Movement is another one. They had a big rally at City Hall a few years ago where they wanted to get all immigrants expelled from the city. Mm -hmm. And then another one that's kind of big is the Golden Dawn, which is a Greek neo-Nazi group. I accidentally wrote geek here, but... I Come think on, I knew what man. I was doing. Oh <laughs> so now I have another story that's uh, leading sort of out of this because you can't spell alien without L.A. This is another weird incident from L.A. history that nobody, like the Murphy Ranch, nobody really knows what exactly happened, which is weird because thousands of people were involved with I it. I need to know more. This is a story of the Great Los Angeles Air Raid, a.k.a. the Battle of Los Angeles, a.k.a. that day when that alien might have showed up. <laughs> so That's how I know it. So not long after what happened at Murphy Ranch, the city was afraid. Pearl Harbor just happened, and it was all but sure that the Japanese would keep pushing east and a mainland attack could happen at any second. These fears were not, they were not unfounded. So right after Pearl Harbor, Japan ordered nine subs to go on to the West Coast and to just start sinking any ships that wow. they found. One of these subs was I-17. So not two weeks after Pearl Harbor, I-17 attacked the SS Emidio off of Cape Mendocino up in the north. It wasn't sunk, but it was severely damaged. I-17 and the other Japanese subs in the areas, they attacked a lot of other carrier ships along the coast, and they were planning a big mainland attack on Christmas Day. Christmas Day? Christmas Day? The one with the Japanese sub as big as you? <laughs> it was called off because the American anti-sub forces in the area were really building up. But on February 23rd, 1942... I-17 was still lingering around just trying to find any unguarded military compounds along the coast. The best they could find was in Golita, which is just 12 miles north of Santa Barbara, mm -hmm. where the Elwood oil field was located. According to Parade Magazine in 1982, the captain of I-17 had once toured this area before the war. But he fell on a cactus during the tour, and his American tour guides laughed at him, so he vowed revenge. <laughs> and this cannot be true in any way, <laughs> but a boy can dream. Yeah. So I-17 surfaced, 
And at 7.15 p.m. in the middle of FDR's fireside chat that night, the cactus captain opened fire. <laughs> this was I wish that his job was cooling people down because he'd be the cactus cooler. He cooled off America's <laughs> military complex a little bit. This was the first time the U.S. mainland had been attacked since the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. The sub fired 17 shells over 20 minutes before radioing Tokyo that Santa Barbara was in flames and then it submerged and ran away. <laughs> in reality, the only thing that happened was a pump house and one oil derrick was destroyed and just people wondering why is there a fire yeah why did that happen that same day four japanese and one italian were taken into custody for allegedly signaling the sub to flare the attacks there were three confirmed japanese attacks on the mainland during the war and this was one of them after this people were especially high strung obviously the la times again Uh they said death to unions and they warned people (laughs) to be especially vigilant the next night in case there was another attack because they felt like all right it's happening now so the oil tanks in El Segundo, which was an area that Japanese people were not allowed in during the war, they got extra guards assigned to them. Lookouts were patrolling all the piers along the coast, Venice, whatever, what have you. Yeah. Uh, we should do an episode on that. Oh, in Venice? Venice. <gasps> Venice, Italy. That's not an alley. Oh, there's a, there's a, by the, by the, the Santa Monica oh, area, right? Yeah, little Santa Monica. Let's just stop this one and read right off of Wikipedia. <laughs> a sub was supposedly spotted not long before this off of the coast of Manhattan Beach. Mm-hmm. So Long Beach, they had mounted cannons pointed toward the sea at the ready. Fort MacArthur in San Pedro was well manned and ready to go. Yeah. Now, this is what you have to understand before to make sense of what happened next. The people of L.A. were so scared and they were so tightly wound. It was like a chinchilla with its finger on the trigger of a gun. Like anything was going to set them off. I love that cartoon. Chinchilla with a gun. Chinchilla with a gun. We'll travel. (laughs) Pearl Harbor was that, obviously, it was that generation September 11th. Right. So it was that same feeling of like vulnerability and like how can this like us like yeah how could we be attacked there must and, be some other hawaii yeah it must be hawaii europe or <laughs> so it led to paranoia and then we were set off 1:44 a.m february 25th 1942 local radars picked up something 120 miles off the coast to the northwest and they sort of raised alarms like all right something's something's happening and then at 206 a.m it was three miles off the coast of la and they're like okay Okay, I think something's happening. And then at 2.21 a.m., the entire West Coast from the San Joaquin Valley to the Mexican border was blacked out. And there were air raid sirens ringing out across L.A. They had one at the Griffith Observatory. Uh And so what happened now, there's very little agreement on what happened. So first, there were reports of one object coming in and then another and then more and more and more and the reports were quickly escalated sightings were reported from Santa Monica all the way to Signal Hill that things were flying over them searchlights from all around the city lit up the night sky and then one of the anti-aircraft guns opened fire and all hell broke (laughs) loose so over the next 58 minutes over 1,400 anti-aircraft shells were fired into the sky. There were 100 searchlights going on. 500 different guns across the city were firing. Wow. People said it sounded like the 4th of July times 100. <laughs> <laughs> the only problem was that nobody really knows or could agree on what they were firing at. 
So some people claim that there was one giant object that floated into the city really? off of Santa Monica and slowly made its way inland to Culver City and then south until it just floated off the coast of Long Beach. Some said that there were anywhere between a dozen and a hundred aircrafts in the air traveling from speeds ranging to very slow to over 200 miles per hour at elevations from 9,000 to 18,000 feet. Some people swore that planes were being shot down, crashing into the ocean. Some people said that one was shot down and just was a fiery wreck right in the middle of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. More realistically, some people definitely just saw weather balloons. (laughs) (laughs) So one guy even claimed responsibility for the confusion, saying that they were testing their radar system somewhere on the coast with some balloons with metal wires attached on it, and then the wind sort of blew it out of control and it went inland. But there's no confirming that. People were convinced that they were German planes that were launched from Mexico or they were reconnaissance aircraft launched from Japanese subs. But reconnaissance flights are usually during the day, you know, when you can see things. And they were just, they're really high up and they go by really quickly. Some were convinced that it was an alien. There were reports of a beautiful pale orange object floating over their houses, which they think was an alien. There's even the iconic picture that was taken over Culver City that really looks like a UFO. Yeah. But when you look at the negative of that picture, which we'll put up, which is readily available to anybody, you'll see that the image printed in the paper was so heavily photoshopped. <laughs> like they manipulated it so much because that was acceptable. There was, that's what newspapers just did in that day to get better pictures. You should get bombed for something like that. <laughs> <laughs> the most credible stories of what happened were things like the artillery, 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 op, the art, literary operators. <laughs> The artillery artillery operators at Fort MacArthur was saying that none of them saw anything, but their commanders kept saying, fire, fire, shoot it, shoot at it. Mm -hmm. And they said, what? What are we shooting at? And then one just was like, okay. And they fired. And then everybody fired in that direction. And as a result, there was so much smoke in the air. It was hard to tell what was real and what wasn't. The anti-aircraft fire itself, which you'll see in the picture, it looks like things in the sky, but that's just like tracers. So they see what they're firing. Isn't that an entire metaphor for war? (laughs) Political. Mm, stay away. <laughs> this was supposedly the first time that an airborne enemy was engaged over the continental U.S., and it was a beautiful engagement. <laughs> Only there may not have been an enemy there. So what definitely did happen, though, was that 1,400 anti-aircraft shells create 1,400 anti-aircraft shrapnel oh, that rained down oh over the whole God. city. So a lot of property was damaged, and there were multiple reports of like unexploded shells just falling like Jesus. next to a playground yeah. or something. <laughs> a few people even said that like they got out of their bed to like see what was going on. They came back, and there's just like a shredded up bed just oh torn to pieces. Five people did die during this whole thing three from car accidents and two from heart attacks oh. <laughs> what also i would have mean you would have been the heart attack. we would have been clutching our, each other's hands <laughs> in a shredded up bed they're here for us <laughs> die i told you it was an alien <laughs> i say germans what also happened was that which you'll get into a lot of japanese residents were rounded up for supposedly sending signals to these planes quote unquote executive order 9066 was signed a few days before this and then this happening was like all right yeah we got to get rid of the japanese and the germans and the italians 
for good measure. <laughs> to make things even more confusing, the Army and the Navy had conflicting reports of what oh, had happened. Boy. The Navy said there were no planes. The Army said that there were planes. There was a call for an official investigation, but that didn't happen until 1983. Wow. They concluded eh, it was probably a weather balloon. That's the best they could come up with. We could with. dance if we want to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can leave your friends behind. The investigation was done by a, a guy named Wes Craven. <laughs> which I enjoy. So <laughs> even though it was front page news on the LA Times, the government was embarrassed and people people could have gotten really hurt from it. So they sort of kind of hushed it up and they swept it away from the history books really yeah. quickly. Japan, after the war, admitted that it had sent planes to fly over the parts of the country to keep them scared, but they swore that they never did that in LA. If it was some sort of a wake-up call to yeah. the city to see if we were ready for an attack, we were not ready for this mm -mm. attack. People were frustrated. They're asking if there were planes why did all of the guns miss them? And if, <laughs> and if there weren't planes, how could the military be so incompetent and just buffoons? Just good qu good questions. Yeah, Very so solid questions. One writer for the Times who had actually spent time in England during their real raids, he yeah. said about all this debate of was it a raid or not? He said, when a real raid happens, you won't have to argue about it. You'll just know. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently things like this happened a few times during the war. In Illinois, a town thought that they were being gassed. A bunch of people even claimed to be dying from the gas, but there was no gas. <laughs> And even the other side was scared. In the Netherlands, the occupying Nazis thought that they were being attacked. So they started to retreat from the city, but not a single bullet was fired oh. anywhere. Runaway scream, we were wrong, we yeah. were wrong. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Every February, the Fort MacArthur Museum has a reenactment of this battle, which oh, seems kind of fun. Let's uh, be the two guys have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> they have two sacrifices. <laughs> this whole incident, it just shows how paranoia and the stresses of war can actually affect an entire city. An entire city of people thinking something happened when yeah. nothing happened. Oh, it was yeah. It's like the perfect Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> Whatever it was in the sky that night, if anything, it was definitely not Japanese and it probably was not an alien. Yeah, that's uh, embarrassing. Both of them. It's just people like you think you're going to a costume party and you dress up as a Nazi <laughs> and you show up and it's just like a wake or something. <laughs> a metaphor for Los Angeles mm -hmm. in two stories. Just blasting in the air at clouds that you've created yourself. I'm going to be talking about the internment camps yeah, that the Japanese population was put perfectly. into. Leads yeah. perfectly With into. all that in mind, here's what we did to them. <laughs> because of our stupid mistakes, this is how we treated them. They called the aliens over here. Put them away. <laughs> this this is not so much a forgotten story. This doesn't get talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. There are memorial sites for this and everything. When I was a kid, my dad used to go to Santa Anita a lot, and my mom would nudge me and say, they used to keep a lot of Japanese people here. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't know what that meant. Like, what, like apartments? She said that everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we should specify there's a difference between internment camps and assembly centers. Okay. Internment camp... We had an internment camp in uh, Manzanar, California. I didn't too much, much, do too much research on what they did in internment camps. That's surprising. Thanks. Actually, I did read a couple books. I read some oral biographies. I watched about four documentaries. And I was able to interview about six Japanese detainees for first-hand accounts of their lives. But because it was in Inyo County, Daniel won't let me talk about it. So we're just going <laughs> to skip all of that. I don't want to hear what they have to say. <laughs> what we had here was assembly centers and, well... Santa Anita, where the racetracks were, and then they, they closed it all down to turn into an assembly center. Basically, they uh, rounded everybody up. They put them in the, uh, barbed wire watch, and then from this point on, they sent them off to Manzanar or New Mexico, like Santa Fe, New Mexico. 
what they did there, I'm not really sure because it didn't happen around here, so I didn't do research <laughs> for it. So we had two really big ones in our area. Santa Anita was one. It was an assembly center. We also had a detention center up in La Tuna Canyon. I call it the Tuna Can Camp. It was the a Tuna de- Can Can. The Tuna, uh, the tuna, tuna Can. Tuna. Oh, God, boy. This is your McNamara, brother. This is my McNamara. <laughs> it's in Tahunga. It's in those hills above Sun Valley right off the 210. There's now a golf course there, <laughs> and a housing development is being put up. Japanese um, welcome. First, let's talk about Terminal Island. Do you ever go to Long Beach? Nope. Or San Pedro? Mm, nope. <laughs> and pass by an industrial waste stand that looks a little bit like the Badlands of Road Warrior. That's Terminal Island. Terminal Island at one point, very early in, in uh, the 20th century, had a really, really large Japanese population that both created and ran a very industrious fishing village. Like they, they pretty much, because it was so contained and it was almost all Japanese, the population, I think I read it was like 97% Japanese. They were able to like flourish and create their own village that looked a lot like japan there's like pictures of they call it furusato which means home sweet home it looks a lot like japan in some areas now we're going to be talking about two generations of people the issei are the japanese born people who are immigrants here and then okay. the nisei is the second generation american born that's going to come up a couple times okay okay i always get them confused yeah they look so much alike the nisei and the issei Anyways, so the port of Terminal Island had been used for importing goods long before the Japanese population settled there. But once they began to establish themselves around 1899, they began operating in isolation, which allowed them independence, like I said. Terminal Islanders developed their own culture. They developed their own dialect, which was sort of like a hybrid, like, so like the Spanglish equivalent Japanglish? of J- Japanglish. Thank you. <laughs> so by 1941, there was about 3,000 Issei and Nisei living in the homes in the it's area. A, the age-old story of Issei Nisei. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. I even wrote it down with a response, and I don't know where it is right now. We'll get back <laughs> oh, to here it. here it is. Shut up, Daniel. Shut up, idiot. It's offensive. They settled on Terminal Island, which at the time was known as East San Pedro, because Terminal Island uh, is a horrible, scary-sounding name for something. The world wasn't ready. So their little fishing village was next to Fish Harbor, which is still there. Most of the local residents worked in the fishing industry if you weren't working like a boat out and sea getting fish you probably worked in a cannery or something it was very like fish oriented and they like distribute the entire city their little village there had a fisherman's hall where they taught like japanese uh martial arts judo and kendo they had a shinto shrine they had little grocery stores with japanese goods they had parlors where they made like billboards and stuff uh, the children attended uh Walzer elementary school and they took the ferry to high school imagine that taking a ferry to high school <laughs> It's so hard to ditch once you're on that ferry. <laughs> At first, Terminal Island was an all-male community, but the number of women and children slowly increased because they, they finally finished The Lord of the Flies. They know how it ended. So they, invented, <laughs> they invited people, women to come. The women worked in canneries. They had the uh, two canneries. They had the Southern Fish Company, and they had Band Camp. December 7th, 1941, a day that lives in an infirmary. <laughs> Pearl Harbor happens. You didn't specify enough. I'm sure people know already. There was a naval base in Hawaii that was attacked by the Japanese. Wait a minute. That's Pearl Harbor? That's Pearl Harbor. Oh, oh no. God. I thought that's where they found all those clams. Oh, God. I said Hurricane Harbor, didn't I? <laughs> Look at these clams. <laughs> Pearl Harbor. <laughs> Never forget. <laughs> Never forget. <laughs> Hours after the attack, the FBI begins to round up the Issei boat owners and the community leaders of Terminal Island. All fishing operations were shut down. Any boats that were out fishing at the time of the attack were radioed back to shore where the Coast Guard raided their boats and their homes and just took Every, anything they considered contraband, which could be anything. Fish. Yeah. <laughs> the homes of community leaders were searched and contraband was confiscated. By community leaders, it was everyone from, like, people who ran organizations to martial arts instructors. Like, every, everybody, basically. Senseis? Sensei. They got senseis. And they couldn't defend themselves? I'm not going to take a class with them. <laughs> Soldiers heavily armed, rode around in jeeps, and patrolled Terminal Island 24 hours of the 24-hour-long day. It became, basically, because it was an island, they could pretty much just contain <laughs> it. Almost immediately... 
they had cleared out the uh, what was called the CCC camp, which was Lutuna Canyon. It was basically set up to help people during the Depression find jobs and work on the land and like get situated so they can go back to work. Uh, Roosevelt set that up in the third, like 1933. As soon as Pearl Harbor happens, they clear it out. Like, okay, we're keeping Japanese and Italians and Germans here. <laughs> so they, they're detained there, all the males. The, and this happens almost immediately, like within five, yeah. like a week. Six days later, Terminal Island was turned into a military area. All civilians were ordered to leave within 48 hours and had to leave almost all their possessions, including fishing boats and fishing gear. Uh, some were able to sell furniture and fishing gear and, and some of their possessions, but because it was such short notice, they had to sell it for really cheap, so people were just taking advantage <gasps> of them. The residential Issei and Nisei of Terminal Island had to shack up with relatives or whoever they could in the alley area, but the government decided even that wasn't good enough. So a few months later, they were ordered to internment camps, which is what eventually what happens. Most of the Japanese population, some 110,000, were sent to Manzanar, like I said, up north. George Takei's parents were there. I don't know if he was there as well yeah. not old enough is he he is he was okay star trek was the 60s star so trek he could have been a, yeah, I guess he, he, he could have been a little baby there little baby little baby 19th of february 42 roosevelt signs uh, executive order 9066 so the executive order sent 120,000 japanese americans to internment camps 62 percent were the nisei uh, and sense uh, sansei which was like the third generation like grandsons of the Issei. Mm-hmm. so there were camps not only in california they had some along like the entire west area like arizona and oregon washington they went inland for arizona now arizona's gonna think it's west coast it's not <laughs> only there in 42 don't get any big heads yeah. <laughs> just because you detained a few japanese you think you're all that <laughs> we held thousands of them <laughs> i've actually heard this isn't defending what they did yeah. but i've heard that fdr did what he did ordered what he ordered for their protection that, that could also make sense too it, it does make sense but also it, no, no, yeah, <laughs> it no. doesn't hold up because yeah, he didn't it's, want because people were racist. They're yeah, very racist, and they're scared and angry, and he didn't want like civilian Japanese and German people to be like lynched in the street. That that makes sense in a nice way, and I hope that a part of yeah. the reason they did that was that yeah, I'm sure the Germans felt the same way <laughs> about the Jews. <laughs> Listen, you can't even step on the street right now, all right? Let, we'll take Just care of you. Just stay inside. Also, close your businesses. We'll make it easier for you. Some of the most lavish bunk beds you've ever seen. <laughs> Just reading about all the hysteria around Pearl Harbor and thinking, relating it back to September 11th. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. Like, cab drivers are being pulled out of, of things and is being beaten in the middle of the street. Yeah. People are like, well, get them. <laughs> Where are they? Call, call for a taxi. Who are their parents? <laughs> so part of me is like, okay, well, it's, it's probably, I don't want to say it was better for them, but it, like, I'm sure that they dodged one bullet and got yeah. hit by another one. Yeah, I know. yeah, they dodged a bullet and got punched in the jaw. <laughs> <laughs> While these relocation camps were being built, uh, evacuees were ordered to stay for a few months at assembly centers throughout California, like I said, Arizona, Oregon, Washington. They were looking for locations to detain a large number of these segregated individuals, so they cleared out Santa Anita Racetrack. They got rid of all the little horses, and they shut the, sh- the park down. Where did they down. go? Hollywood Park. I don't know. <laughs> there was a big influx of glue production in Los Angeles during the war. He sent all the horses to Terminal Island. Latuna Canyon Detention Center had about seven barracks. It was really small. They kept saying it could only hold 300 persons. But uh, come on, <laughs> like in times like this, I keep reading like, oh, yeah, it had like an inflow of like 1500 people just moving in at any given time. And I don't know if they were there all at the same time, but like it's really hard. Like, okay, 300, now send another 300. And even then, like, you're at capacity. <laughs> the Tuna Can Camp, you were there for from, like, a few weeks to about three months until they figured out where to send you. Then they put everyone on a train, and you either went to Fort Missoula, Montana, or Fort Lincoln, North Dakota, which was really far. 
a long train ride. That's a lot of camps. That That's a lot. That's a lot. ridiculous. Isn't it ridiculous? It's and it so went on weird. till what, like March of the next year. Tuna Cam Camp, as I disrespectfully call it, <laughs> included seven barracks, an infirmary, a mess hall, office buildings, and a mayonnaise dispenser. <laughs> they had a medical care facility, a barber shop. A canteen that sold goods to internees. They had religious services with um, a Christian priest and a Buddhist priest. They had allowed visitors on, I believe, Sundays. Like, there was like two minutes for each person, basically. As bad as it was, they were sort of given a lot of freedoms within these camps. Like, the guy who ran, I think, Tunican Camp, uh, his name was M.H. Scott. He allowed their own self-governing system, kind of like jails work. <laughs> You're allowed your own system and culture to fit in. You were allowed to take jobs for different purposes you got paid like i think you got like a severance package where you were paid to, when you left like 25 dollars or something day-to-day complaints were not severe like they didn't have a lot of like their their complaints were sort of overall encompassing and yeah. then like little things as like, in why am yeah, i in why a camp? Am, yeah. <laughs> but also like oh that that they have a korean interpreter he's saying everything wrong uh. we're gonna need like little things not like that's a little thing <laughs> yeah good thing we trusted the koreans <laughs> that worked out well in the next decade <laughs> only half the country and then a lot of people also said like yeah you took us from our homes which is an atrocity but like imagine that like sentence of like okay get out of your home and leave all your stuff behind in terminal i we're going to <laughs> la tuna canyon sun valley with a lot of shade on the edge of angeles national <laughs> forest you're like okay <laughs> it might be a vacation probably not but a lot of people are like oh there's a lot of shade and like this is this is what nature looks like we've been over by the harbor this whole time <laughs> this is nature one of the most notable interns at tunican camp was Ichi kono who was charlie chaplin's chauffeur and personal really? secretary until 1934 uh, he was picked up before and after the attack and was accused of being a spy for the japanese military <laughs> on the second arrest he was sent to the, the tuna canyon detention center on uh, december 19th which was like what a week some week and some change 12 uh, 12 days oh, okay numbers then from there he was sent to uh, other horrible places recently with tuna can camp there's a golf course there and there's a developer who was going to build houses and I'm like okay well we also need to put a memorial because something you know there was this uh, crime against the japanese committed and he put up a memorial and i kept reading reports where the guy was like no nah, i'm not gonna do that <laughs> after like he agreed to but basically it comes down to him like yeah we're gonna have it but like can you keep it to the side like we don't need it like right up front <laughs> anyways all operations ended at tunican camp on october 1st 1943 so now we're gonna go back to the race and they track. all they all went home they all, they all got to go home? Or? No, no, no. They, oh, from there, they're sent to other oh, okay. camps. But operation but shut down. they were done with that. Yeah, we're, they're so done. So every Japanese person was out was, of the city by then. Yeah, basically. Um, I know that they also, I remember when we were doing the Venice one, they sort of rounded people up in mm-hmm. Venice. Yeah, in like Venice, that's where yeah. they would send them. Yeah. And then from there to there. It's <laughs> a very, it, PCH will take you very far up north. <laughs> Tunican camp was sort of short term. After that, some time settles down. It's February Executive Order 9066 is placed in after this point. They clear out the racetracks, and they're taken to Santa Anita racetrack. It was once home, like I said, to one of the largest assembly centers for Japanese Americans in North America. Uh, assembly centers, not the internment camps. So the entire park was cleared out, and they had a row and row of identical barracks covered with tar paper. They had several mess halls. They had a hospital. They had stores, a post office. They had classrooms. They had a makeshift church in the Trek's grandstands. Each detainee was given an army bed, one blanket, and a straw mattress. Good stuff. The uh, racetrack was all surrounded, like I said, by barbed wire. Uh, later, this was the model for America's best value in. 
A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> Overall, of course, this is a big issue and it's a problem and they shouldn't have been there in the first place. But like day to day, they just it was just like life in an internment camp, basically. It was like life in jail. There wasn't a lot of money for activities, but they found things here and there to keep themselves occupied. They had marble contests. They had dances. Community uh, would sing for a concert. They had talent shows. I think that, that's the base qualification as occupied. Yeah. Those sorts of things. <laughs> they had a the, something called the Japanita Jive, which was Santa Anita's Sounds first offensive. band and orchestra, from which the Starlight Serenaders developed a 12-piece band led by Larry Kurtz, who was allowed to camp for that purpose twice weekly. Yeah, you can you import a guy and sing. <laughs> About half a dozen Boy Scout troops, they had a PTA. The Boy Scouts conducted daily flag raising and lowering ceremonies, which was really nice. We love America. They had a theater group. They had religious services that were still upheld, albeit mostly improvisational just like okay like they had a visiting priest and he would just okay well <laughs> they also had teacher school like if they had any teachers that were detained then they would become the teachers inside the camp as well for whatever kids were around despite the summer still beating on everybody's sports were played regularly they had softball hardball basketball they played batman they had sumo wrestling the camp had more than 70 softball teams organized in three leagues they had a female judo team they had Did a hand judo or churro judo this isn't the plague it's judo now <laughs> by mid-august the golf driving range had been built fever and digestive problems were the most widespread medical conditions due to the unbalanced diet and the unfamiliar heat to them because they were so used mm. to being by the harbor uh, according to the army's final report there were 37 deaths and 197 births one of these births was actually <laughs> they said barfs barfs 198 in one day <laughs> of the births that happened in santa Anita, George a baby was born named roy nakatani he had a son, Corey Nakatani, who became a horse jockey who commonly races at Santa Anita. And they always want to bring it up. He's like, listen, I don't know. <laughs> but of course, this was still a detainee camp. At night, searchlights still swept the streets. They still had raids on their stuff. Residents were banned from possessing any literature printed in Japanese. This was considered contraband to them. Now, Santa Anita did have a library, and the library was a cubicle in the grandstand. <laughs> it had several thousand books on its shelf, 5,000 loan donated from LAPL. I thought you would like to know that. Good for them. But the ban on Japanese literature I resulted guess. in the room. <laughs> sure, I give whatever. That's why all the Japanese owe fines because of that time. And it carries on. You inherit your grandparents' uh, debt to the library system. The fines of your father. <laughs> but the ban on Japanese literature resulted in the removal of countless books, though. So a lot of books that they wanted to read usually kind of Initially, only magazines were available to the public. But later, people would check out like four books a week. And the head librarian was Anna Murakawa. Just in case you want to know. Okay. I'll ask around. Thanks. See if she's still going. Thanks. Now, visitors could be received at the Baldwin Avenue gate. Due to the great number of visitors, visiting was really restricted, and only direct relatives and business representatives were allowed to apply for a visitor's pass. This was between two hours, two to four, and they commonly saw more than 1,000 people at a time trying to visit people. And again, I believe it was like two minutes at a time. Santa Anita was the only WCCA with stands for the Wartime Civil American Control Administration, one of the only camps that had any kind of disturbance of a serious proportions occurred. On August 4th, there was a dispute between the detainees and the detainers. A routine search for contraband and an announced confiscation of hot plates and a hot plate turned really violent. There was a lot of rumors and complaints spread as the crowds gathered. Apparently, they thought that one of the people was like an informant, informing against them, like Stalag 17. I guess they beat him up. 200 military police were called and and about 2,000 people were protesting. I can't tell. It just says an informant was beat. So I don't know if he was informing on the Japanese or they caught him as an informant for the Japanese. But one guy got beat up for being an informant. So they got locked down basically because of that. Everyone's privileges were locked down at that point. Once the soldiers <laughs> entered the camp, the crowds dispersed really quickly and martial law was declared that night and residents were confined to their barracks with no meals served. <laughs> the military police patrolled inside the center for three days withdrawing from the camp on August 7th. It was only one instance in which the, the they declared martial law and that was it basically. 
basically. So there wasn't a lot of like, um, what's the word? The pirate word? There wasn't a lot of mutiny. Booty? Oh. Booty. Okay. There yeah. wasn't a lot oh, of yeah, booty. Yeah, mutiny, mutiny. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of mutiny. A lot of booty. Let's talk about the pacemaker a little bit. The pacemaker was the magazine that they put out, a newspaper that the Japanese put out within Santa Anita. And you, it's God. available on uh, the Arcadia Public Library website. It's all free. It's all very entertaining. <laughs> it was written in English by a staff of Japanese Americans interned at the camp. It came out twice a week on about like four to six mimeograph pages. They found enough wiggle room to like put their own creative stamp on the publication. It was really neat. A typical issue reported official announcements such as ordering evacuees to return their plates and utensils to the mess hall or else the barracks would get searched. They also reported news like births and birthday parties and club meetings and any kind of sports reports. They ran a, a women's column called Feminine Forum in which the writer dispensed advice about how to wash your hair when shampoo wasn't available, stuff like that. They were, t- they were in jail. That's yeah, a- <laughs> they don't. Just why bother? Horse manure. There's plenty of it. We left it all for you. <laughs> they managed to slip in some subversive humor from when I read. When it profiled the Japanese-American family from Arcadia and turned at the camp, the tongue-in-cheek headline read, well, it wasn't much of a move. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. It was popular enough, and it's such a, an artifact from that time that it gets revered. So on August 26th, the evacuation of Santa Anita began. About 900 detainees were sent out either by train or by bus. That was for long-term confinement. Some were sent up the Colorado River. Some were sent to Wyoming. Manzanar, like I said, Central Utah, Granada, Jerome. They were sort of just dispersed everywhere. I don't know how that works. After the closing of the assembly center, the site became Camp Santa Anita, a training facility for 20,000 army troops. It was the largest army ordnance training center on the West Coast, and more than 100,000 soldiers were trained here until, like, November of 44. Was this, like, the only place in L.A. at the time? Like, every- everything else was a... Well, they were having dance marathons. At, <laughs> they couldn't square Horse off. track slash multi-purpose military <laughs> site. If you look at the lot, it's flat, it's giant, and it's because it's flat, it can be easily contained. Like, you can't do that at Dodger Stadium because there's so many hills. It's so close to the river. It's so and close to train Dodger tracks. Stadium didn't exist. And it's also because it was Chavez Ravine. Uh, <laughs> well, you would have used Dodger Stadium, but it's in Brooklyn. So. <laughs> in January of 44, the Supreme Court ruling halted the detention of U.S. citizens without cause. An exclusion order was rescinded. The Japanese Americans were began to leave all the camps they were at, most returning home to rebuild their former lives, which they couldn't. The last camp closed in 46, and by the end of the 20th century, the U.S. government had paid $1.6 billion dollars in reparations to the detainees and their descendants which is really good the internees were released with 25 dollars and a ticket home <laughs> they returned home to find nothing furusato which where they live the fishing village was gone without a trace they everything got bulldozed basically like racehorses racehorses lived there they were being killed there the canneries were still operating and a few people went back to work there it was a loss of 130 million dollars <laughs> that they had created from the fishing village everything was completely destroyed all the fishing boats were either taken by the military repossessed stolen or destroyed in 45 Santa Anita park reopens as a park and it becomes like the world premier place to watch racehorses basically. (laughs) In 71 former residents of Terminal Island created the Terminal Islanders Club. They meet every once in a while. They have reunions and they have golf games and picnics and stuff. Most of them are in their 80s now. I think it was in 2001 where the Santa Anita Racetrack designated their spot as a California historic landmark. In 2000 it was included as one of the National Trust for Historic Preservations and the most endangered sites because of everything that happened. So it's it's listed. If you go there, it does mention a plaque like right before you go through the gate. It's like, oh, hey, by the way, it's on the screen, a... they have a thing like, how many uh, thousand Japanese Americans do you think this place could hold? <laughs> and it has like A, 12,000, B, 19,000. And if you if you win, you get to stay a night at Santa Anita in a horse barrack. We have <laughs> some of the meanest humor. We're mean people. Terrible. Absolutely laughing at horrible. dead people. Laughing at people. Laughing at put dead up in, 
natural and otherwise. Where were the Germans and the Italians? Were they in the same places? Yeah, they were in the same places. Did they get along? Did they form some sort of an axis? Maybe they got along a little too well. <laughs> it doesn't mention a lot about them. I mean, it does. It, all it mentioned is, oh yeah, there was also Germans and Italians, but you don't like. They must have kept them separate. Imagine double segregation. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, well, you guys are getting segregated, and within them, <laughs> you guys got to stand over here. You guys are going to Tuna Camp Canyon. <laughs> you guys are going to uh, Bumblebee. <laughs> Not a lot of good stories about LA. Terrible times. Terrible times. Terrible city. People. Let's all move mm-hmm. to Montana. Oh, Montana. Montana. Oh, oh I left my heart there. Oh, God. General stores. <laughs> <laughs> now, we hope forget that, it all. Yep. Forget everything we said. You can like see the why they're forgotten. Stores. They're boring. Yeah. No one likes them. <laughs> They'll say, that's not a pig, that's me sleeping, but I snore. <laughs> that's me sleeping, dreaming about a pig. Because I sleep in mud. <laughs> yeah, another episode. Ten episodes, double digits. We hit double digits now. Double We've been digits. doing this for ten months, almost shy of a year. Eee. I know. Uh, Twitter. We're on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Facebook. Like us on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Tumblr. Things on Tumblr. Leave more reviews on iTunes. The more we get, the more likely it is that we won't have to stop doing this. Yeah. Oh, we shouldn't have told them that. No, yeah, they're going to want us. They know our weakness. Yeah, no. If we ever get bad, that's, they're just going to not leave reviews like they already have. <laughs> We're not going to get bad. Come on. Do all those things. Like us everywhere. Mm-hmm. Love us. Don't leave us. Yeah. Please, you're, you're all we've got. Also, we didn't mention the riots this episode, so riots. Riots. The riots. I would have rioted. <laughs> you know, they had a mini riot at the internment camp. That's true. It's, it's true. They had to throw down martial law like every other law. Martial law. Lore. You're ready for Montana. <laughs> there's an, a, a really nice horse barrack I could sleep at in Montana. <laughs> I can't believe they did that. <laughs> yeah. You know what the problem is? I could believe it. <laughs> I could believe they did that. All of these Brought stories. to you by the same people that shot at smoke in the air for an hour. <laughs> Get him! Get him! Get him! <laughs> What's that? A Hollywood sign? I bet the ship. That's it. That's it. I had a great time. What about you? I had the greatest time of my life doing this You know episode. what? You didn't look like you did. A lot of times you look like you were veering off into space. Your brain. I think you must have been looking at a mirror. You son of a bitch. <laughs> so anyway, this has been yet another episode of LA Meekly contracting Bobos since 2013. Bye. 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 Birdie. Bye. Bye. Internment camps. <laughs>